Amen. Well, thank you, Lishi, and thank you to the Brown family. It is good to be with you. My name is Abby Odio, and I am a pastor of teaching information here at Bethany Green Lake. Uh, welcome to all of you who are joining us in Seattle and those of you who are elsewhere in the world. It is good to be with you today as we start this new series that will take us through the next several weeks leading up to Easter. And if you've been in church for some time, uh, you'll be, maybe be familiar with this word, Lent. Uh, Lent is essentially the six weeks uh, that we, uh, as we approach Easter, we call those six weeks Lent. And the series we're entering into is called Formed in the Wilderness. Uh, from now through Easter Sunday, we'll be studying the book of Exodus, particularly this wilderness journey of Moses and the Israelites after they're freed from enslavement and oppression in Egypt, but before they arrive in the promised land. And it makes sense that we would study uh, this particular section of scripture because Lent is a season where, kind of like Lishi mentioned, we purposely withdraw from the resources and perhaps behaviors that bring us a sense of uh, comfort and control in the world. We withdraw from those in order to find God. And for Israel, their time in the wilderness was precisely that. Now, if I'm being honest, it felt a bit strange and perhaps even insensitive to um, invite our community this week into a wilderness experience when we all know it feels like we've been in the wilderness for some time. If you're here in Seattle, you'll know we're approaching uh, the one-year mark of the initial lockdown. I remember a group of pastors at Bethany gathering and choosing even before the governor's orders uh, that in sort of the name of love and care for our community, we were gonna move our worship online. I remember we said, we'll do it now and you know, we'll get through the next few weeks and then we'll look forward to getting together on Easter. We'll make Easter great. That was Easter 2020. And now we're approaching Easter 2021 and, and still in the name of love and care, we're not physically worshiping together. And we're certainly closer to that moment and we're starting to dream and to talk about what that will look like for Green Lake. Uh, but we're sort of living in this in-between space. We're sort of in this uniquely difficult season. It's been a year of grief, a year of challenge, a year of unmasking injustice, a year of uncertainty, a year of anxiety, a year of isolation for a lot of people. And that's not all it's been. There have certainly been moments of joy, moments of celebration, moments of goodness. But there's been a lot of heart. And so all that's to say, to stand here and say, come on, we're headed to the wilderness, everyone. It feels a bit off, like, come on, pastor, read the room. Now, having named that as I was prayerfully sort of living in that tension and studying our text from Exodus, it hit me that Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Think about that. We've sort of been at this for a year. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And I read that with this sort of renewed sense of empathy. We know that this journey from enslavement to the promised land took 40 years, but had Israel taken the most direct route through, they could have made it in a few weeks' time. Instead, you'll see on the map, uh, this red line here indicates the road that they took. They get almost there, and then God leads them back out into the wilderness. And what this map, what Israel's story highlights for us is that there are things more important 
to God than simply getting through what is hard. If that were the case, God would have taken them straight there. But instead, he takes them this longer route, indicating that more important than just getting through it is being formed. Formed to reflect God's character, God's nature, God's love, God's justice. So as we study this passage today, we aren't so much entering the wilderness this land. We all know we've been there, so to speak. But in a sense, we're pausing to ask, how are we doing in it? Are we just getting through or are we getting through with God, formed by God, deeply dependent on God, shaped by God? Are we being formed? So to that end, would you pray with me as we look at the scripture together? God, we thank you that you are with us in whatever wilderness we sit in today. God, we thank you that time and time again, you make it clear that you are a God who does not stop pursuing us, that does not stop finding us, that takes that clay and says, I am committed to making this into something beautiful and good. God, I pray as we turn to you this morning, as we look at these words, that they would be part of that formation process, that we would ask the hard questions of ourselves because they lead us closer to you and who you would have us become. God, we do this just sitting in your love and grace. We thank you for that. Amen. So uh, as we study this text from Exodus, there are three specific invitations that I hope will offer you some encouragement wherever you are today. And those invitations are this, the invitation to detach, the invitation to thirst, and the invitation to heal. Detach, thirst, and heal. So we begin first with this invitation to detach. In Exodus 15, uh, Israel has just crossed the Red Sea. God loves people and God hates oppression. And so God miraculously rescues uh, Israel from enslavement. And the sea parts, the people move through just in time for the waves to come together and destroy the powerful Egyptian army. Cue Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey right here when you believe. Like this is a glorious moment for Israel. Their trust in God and their leader Moses is high. They dance and they sing on the shore. They are worshiping God. They are all in. And then we come to verse 22 where this really subtle but important shift sort of occurs. We read this. Then Moses ordered Israel to set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. Now, the verbiage of this verse actually indicates that it took some effort on Moses' part to get the people moving. Jewish tradition speculates this is because the people were preoccupied with not only the victory, but also with the spoils of victory. In short, they liked the Egyptian stuff. And now, and now with the army gone, it's theirs. Ancient uh, Jewish writings go so far as to suggest that Israel considered taking the chariots and helmets that had washed up on shore and returning back to Egypt, now able to rule the land where previously they had been enslaved. Now, to be clear, the text doesn't say that. Uh, We don't know the exact details, but we do know Moses orders them away from the stuff into the wild. 
And herein lies their first invitation. Detach from some former things, the former ways, the former expectations. I'm doing a new thing. Come with me into this unknown land. Now, this idea of detachment is so important because it exposes and reveals something very true about Israel. And of course, what is true for Israel is also true for us. I'll never forget just over a year ago now, our youngest son Fritz uh, was born. And leading up to the moment of his birth, I was experiencing some pretty intense pain. It's a thing. And because uh, Fritz was actually facing the wrong way, like instead of being head down, he was head up. And um, that can cause something called back labor, which is a truly unjoyful experience that I hope you never have to go through. Uh, But somewhere along this lovely journey, I told my husband, Sam, and the midwife who was with us, I want an epidural, which is, of course, the shot that... uh, takes the pain away. Now, this was a new experience. I hadn't had an epidural before, but friends who'd talked about it really sold me on it. They pitched it hard. They said, it's absolutely the greatest thing. So in this moment of intense pain, my expectations were incredibly high. And long story short, I got the shot and it provided relief to a great deal of my body, except for some reason to the very area where I was experiencing the most pain in my back. So a bit of time passes and they call the anesthesiologist back and he's checking everything out. And he kind of tells me cheerfully and proudly that it all looks good. And you can ask people that I work with. Some of them are here. You can ask friends and family. Generally, I'm pretty easygoing. I aspire to be kind. I'm not prompted to anger all that quickly. All that is true. And I let loose on that poor man. Fast forward a few hours, all is well. We have a healthy baby. My husband, Sam, uh, is kind of looking at me with this mixture of fear and admiration. And he says to me, I did not know you had that in you. See, I had this expectation of how things would go and they went very differently. And in detaching from that expectation, a side of me not often seen was most certainly exposed. See, detachment leads us to a place, a hard and necessary place of self-discovery. What do I learn about myself when the epidural doesn't work, so to speak? What rises up in me when I thought the promised land was just a day's journey away and instead I'm still in the desert? What do I see in myself when I walk away from the tempting spoil of the Egyptians only to find myself now thirsty and lacking, questioning? I read this week that in the past year in New York City, there's been a 1,900% increase in hate crimes motivated by anti-Asian sentiment. 1,900%. And friends, let me tell you, that's not because people all of a sudden became more racist. It's because human propensity towards terrible evils is there. (laughs) It's in all of us. And when push comes to shove, if we don't get in touch with that, if we don't address that, if we don't go out into the wilderness for a time and find what is true and hard in us, it will prevail. And the way we get in touch with that is to detach from inadequate substitutions for God. To see ourselves in that place of lack with greater clarity, as hard as it can be. 
The pastor, Barbara Brown Taylor, frames the invitation to detach this way. She says, whenever we start feeling too empty inside, we stick our pacifiers in our mouths and suck for all we're worth. They do not nourish us, but at least they plug a hole. To enter the wilderness is to leave them behind and nothing is too small to give up. Even a chocolate bar will do. For 40 days, simply pay attention to how often your mind travels in that direction. Ask yourself why it happens when it happens. So ask yourself today, what are your substitutions? What what pacifiers are we using? What would it look like for the next several days to leave it by the shore, to trust that there is ground beyond it? Maybe uh, it's as simple as a bar of chocolate. It might be a habit around money and how you spend it or food and drink and resources and how you consume them. It might mean detaching from work and taking an actual Sabbath one day a week, seeing what comes up in you when you can't find your identity in what you do. I had a friend who decided for a time he was going to detach from having the last word. He realized in conversations with you know, his wife at home or in a work setting, he was actually my boss, so I saw this quite a bit, not here at Bethany, but elsewhere, um, that he took a lot of security from having the last say. And so he said, I'm detaching from that. I'm not going to have the last word. I'm going to let other people do it. I think he was successful about 50% of the time, but you get the point. What will you detach from this Lent? That brings us to this second invitation we see in Israel's story, which is this, an invitation to thirst. An invitation to thirst. You'll notice in our text from Exodus 15 that Israel leaves the Red Sea and they spend three days in the desert of Shur before they arrive at Marah, which is the place uh, where they'll eventually receive the sweet water. We know that three days is about as long as the human body can go without water. So it's safe to say Israel is thirsty and they're desperately thirsty. I put myself in their shoes and I imagine day one, they're out there trudging along, kind of still riding the high of what happened at the Red Sea, still living on adrenaline, still have enough kind of willpower to sustain them through the desert. Uh, This is kind of like that first month of quarantine. We were all baking bread. We were learning new skills. Like, this is hard, but we can do it. We've got what it takes. Then we get to that second waterless day. They still have a bit of willpower, but they're missing normalcy. They're missing even the predictability of Egypt. They're beginning to question if this was truly the best choice they could have made. Finally, that third day rolls around and everyone is thirsty. We don't want God in the wilderness. We just want the epidural, make it all go away. Now, the experience of thirst is not something we generally think of as a positive thing. We think of it, uh, we might even call it unpleasant, but it is a necessary feeling because it cues us to something essential and fundamental that our body needs that we simply cannot do without. It means there's a space that's opened up and it's uncomfortable to be sure, but it's open. And it will take Israel a bit to realize that their thirst is not actually a sign that they've gone the wrong way and they need to turn around, but it's a sign that they've gone the right way and they are now finally in touch with their greatest and most essential human need. Pastor Walter Brueggemann says it this way, the deepest questions of faith for Israel are connected to the deepest 
material reality of life. He's talking about the water. I remember one of the years I was uh, pastoring at a church. We were in a series all about this word trust. I'm embarrassed to say, I think it was called Trust Falls. Uh, It was cool then. And we were exploring this theme of learning to live this life of trust in God. And one of our volunteer leaders heard that we were preparing for this series. And he said, I'd love for you to come with me somewhere. Come be a guest with me at this group that I attend. I said, sure. So um, I showed up with him and it turns out this group was his weekly Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And we walked in and it was this elementary school gym and elementary school I walked by every day. I had no idea they held AA meetings there. And uh, the place was packed with people, like easily over a hundred people, standing room only. And then this brilliant, thoughtful man got up and he talked about being thirsty. He talked about the time he was living in the Tenderloin district during the AIDS pandemic. He talked about discovering that he had in fact become infected with AIDS. He talked about his family essentially disowning him. He talked about drinking every day and night to numb the pain of all of that. And then he got to the end of his talk and I'll never forget this. He said, uh, he hadn't even let on at this point that he was a follower of Christ, but he said, I was thirsty and I either had to drink the Holy Spirit or I had to go back to drinking. And I remember looking around the room and seeing every head nodding in that space because they were so in touch with their thirst. They knew that without God, they would be lost. And because of that thirst, not in spite of it, but because of it, they knew God in this profound and deep way. And every time they felt it, it wasn't an invitation to run back to what was comfortable. It was an invitation to lean into God's spirit, to choose to trust. It's interesting that after three days, Israel comes upon the water and at first they taste it and it's bitter. The people complain to Moses and Moses cries out to God. And then God shows Moses this piece of wood and he he throws it into the water and the water becomes sweet. It's a miracle. And this part of the story is a bit perplexing if you think about it. Like, God, why didn't you just have the good water ready to go? You're God, you could have done that. Why all the theatrics? But as we study the story, it becomes clear that God's offering water in the wilderness is actually an offering of God's self. It's not just Moses' ability to scout the terrain and use some wilderness guide tricks. That's not it at all. God says, in the same way water is essential for life, I am essential for life. Bring your thirst right here and make no mistake, this is my doing. This is my offering. I am the God who quenches your thirst. So, What will we do in the coming weeks as we detach and we feel thirst? How will we respond to that space that opens up in us as we continue to journey into the wilderness? In the fourth century, when Lent became a formal practice within the church, it was common for people to detach from something in their life. They called it fasting. And as they would fast, they would also practice the discipline of prayer. In a sense, fasting opened up the space and through prayer, a person connected with God, met with God, had that space filled, had that thirst quenched. Fasting meets prayer. 
in Orthodox uh, Christian circles, the name given to this space of collision between fasting and prayer, need and God, wilderness and provision. It's called a bright sadness, a place of bright sadness. Detachment has brought us to the end of ourselves, but through prayer, we do that in the best possible way. We bring God into it. There is a spark. We taste sweet water. This week, PBS put out a documentary called The Black Church. It's phenomenal. I'd highly recommend it. Um, But it tells the story of the black church in America. And one of the things that becomes so evident from the very beginning of that documentary is the sheer light and life and vibrancy of the black church in the midst of unspeakable evils being committed against black folks in our nation. You see it in the clips of people worshiping and dancing and praying all the while Jim Crow is still alive and well outside the sanctuary walls. And as I watched these scenes from the film, I couldn't help but notice the role of prayer. People are praying for each other. People are praying as the preacher is talking. People are praying and they're praying desperately. And one of the commentators in this documentary notes that this is because without the community of prayer, the wilderness of injustice was so real that black folks would not survive. See, sometimes God leads us into the wilderness, but sometimes the wilderness finds us because we live in a fallen world full of sickness and injustice. And either way, prayer is the lifeline that fills that space, that quenches that thirst. Prayer is the connection point that keeps us from becoming bitter in our thirst, keeps us from putting on the Egyptian armor and going back to Egypt and becoming oppressors ourselves. It's how we stay connected. And so this invitation to feel our thirst is followed by an invitation to pray. It's a simple invitation. And yet often I, often I think we spend remarkably little time doing this. In Romans 8, uh, Paul reminds us that we are not bound to fear, but rather we are bound to God's Holy Spirit. And so when we pray, we cry out, Abba, Father. It's this reminder that even as I make my way in the wilderness, there is security. There's this God who, like a perfect father, is with me, who holds me, who fills me. And so my encouragement to you as you begin is to begin with this simple Abba Father prayer when you come to an awareness of your deep human thirst. As you detach, let yourself become thirsty and go there. It might be, uh, this thirst might happen by way of a health struggle or a school struggle or an injustice struggle or a marriage struggle or a loneliness struggle. It might be a thirst you feel as you intentionally detach from a chocolate bar or something in your life. But try just this week, try to detach and then pray that prayer, Abba, Father. And maybe you consider building in some other prayer rhythms into your week, and that's great. But at the very least, start here. See how God meets you. That brings us to the end of this text, which is our final invitation. And that's an invitation to heal. An invitation to heal. God declares to Israel, I am the Lord who heals you. Now that word heal, it means to repair or to make whole what has been broken. And it can be a tricky word in our modern context because it's often equated uh, simply with physical healing. 
And we know God longs for people to be physically healed. We know that Jesus heals sickness. Uh, He's giving us a foretaste of God's kingdom when all will be restored. And so he makes people who are sick well. And that being true, we pray for bodily healing. We long for that. God is still a God of miracles. And the Hebrew uh, word that's used here for healing includes, but is not limited to mere physical healing. It's a word, rapha. It implies this wholeness of self, this restoration of self. And the way that uh, God uh, tells Israel they'll experience this wholeness is actually through proximity to him. If you read the uh, text closely, he says, listen to me. Listen closely to me. There's an emphasis on that word, listen. Look for me. Follow my ways. Now, this is important because often our notions of healing are attached to a change in circumstances. But notice God's healing of Israel is not circumstantial first. It's relational. Notice God doesn't say, follow the rules and all will be well for you. Rather, he says, lean into relationship with me, turn to me, and the core of who you are will be made well. Do you see the difference there? It's as though God is saying, where you you are matters less. Choosing to be with me matters entirely. It's the most important thing. Now, don't mishear me. That doesn't mean we shouldn't remove ourselves from toxic or hard or abusive circumstances. We should. This is why God leads Israel out of Egypt in the first place. But so often, if you're like me, we become fixated on circumstances. We become fixated and we forget uh, life is to be found not in where we are, but in who we are attached to, in our proximity to God. This is why God leads Israel through the wilderness to begin with, instead of going right to the promised land. And this is God's way of saying, choose me. Choose me, choose me wherever you are. When we're walking through the wilderness and when we're on the mountaintop, when we're healthy and when we're sick, when life is how we would have it be and when pandemic hits, choose me. Now, as we'll see in the coming weeks, which I really hope y'all will join us for, the people of Israel are really quite terrible at choosing God. Sometimes they do, other times they don't. They have short memories. They're quick to complain. They're quick to run back to that epidural. They're quick to doubt. But the beauty of this story is that when Israel stops choosing God, God keeps choosing them, stays committed to their wholeness, stays committed to their healing. I want to fast forward now to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the place where Jesus sat the night before he was crucified, the night before he went to the cross. He's about to walk through the ultimate wilderness. And his disciples, his closest followers, his friends, they are actually right there with him in this moment. And he says to them, stay awake, stay with me, pray with me. We're in the wilderness. A space has opened up. We're uncomfortable. Fill yourselves with me. Here's what happens. They fall asleep another fail. And Jesus doesn't say to hell with y'all. Instead, he says, I'll do the thing you cannot do. I'll keep choosing you, even when you cannot stay awake with me. He says that prayer that Paul encourages us to pray, beginning with those words, Abba, Father. 
That's how his prayer starts. And he says them for us even when we're asleep. See, in the wilderness, we learn to choose God, but we ultimately, we learn that even when we can't, even when we can't, God keeps on, keeps on choosing us, keeps on pursuing the wholeness of our being, stays in relationship. One of my favorite authors is a man by the name of Christian Wyman. And Christian was raised in a small uh, faith community, conservative town in Texas. He left home. He left the church. He became an agnostic, became a, went on to become a writer and a poet. Then in his late 30s, he was diagnosed with an incurable and uh, kind of unpredictable cancer. And, though this experience, and through this experience, he became very aware of his own mortality. And it was actually this wilderness that caused him to find Jesus again. He writes about this in this really honest and profound way in a book called My Bright Abyss. And I was struck by how close that title is to this idea of bright sadness from the Orthodox Church. This idea that there's something about the wilderness that is unique and hard and devastating, but beautiful and bright. Here's the quote I want to share with you from that book. Wyman writes this, Herein lies the great difference between divine weakness and human weakness. The wounds of Christ and the wounds of man. Two human weaknesses only intensify each other, but human weakness plus Christ's weakness equals a supernatural strength. In other words, when we are weak, when we fail to find God, we failed to find God, but when Christ was weak, he did not fail. And his strength becomes our strength. His healing becomes our healing. His wholeness becomes our wholeness. That's what the wilderness is good for. We learn that. We learn to trust that. As we close today, I'm going to invite you to receive communion, drive-through style. I know this is going to take some effort, especially if it involves uh, like putting kids in car seats or some of you might be still watching in your pajamas, which is great. Uh, that's okay. You can come in your pajamas. We'll be in the back parking lot between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. And we'd love to serve you communion and pray with you. And as you come, I'd encourage you to contemplate the next six weeks. Um, literally, as you're driving or walking here, maybe it's with a family or one of your roommates. Maybe it's alone. But I'd invite you to consider how is it that you want to connect with God in this season of Lent? Maybe you come up um, with something you want to detach from and a rhythm of prayer that you want to adopt over the next six weeks. Uh, But as you make your way here, let this be your moment of consciously saying, I'm going to choose God. I'm going to choose God. And when you arrive, as you receive communion, as you receive the body and the blood of Christ, let that be your reminder, your Abba Father reminder that God chooses you, that God will keep choosing you, that there's life in the wilderness. So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said to his friends and his disciples who were gathered there, he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. And then he took the cup and he poured out the wine and he said, this is the blood of my new covenant shed for you. And he said, as often as you come together and you 
eat this bread and you drink this cup, remember me, choose me, quench your thirst with me. And I, I have chosen you. Never forget it. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that when we couldn't even find the will to stay awake with you, to stay connected to you, you find us. That in this uh, beautiful and holy moment, you have chosen us. God, I pray if there's anyone here today who is listening this, who's doubting that, that your Holy Spirit would fill this, them in this moment and remind them that they are yours entirely, fully, and completely. God, I pray for us as we walk through the wilderness, so to speak, for the, the coming several weeks, that we would choose you. And that in so choosing, we would be formed. That where there is fear, we would find courage. That where there is doubt, we would find faith. God, may your spirit become more alive in us. May we be formed to be people who reflect you to this broken world. We're so grateful for you. We're grateful even for the wilderness as it brings us closer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.